Oh my goodness, you guys. I cannot tell you how excited I am to have you listen to this episode. I only just figured out that when you have a podcast, you can have people come on that you would like to come on. And I am now calling and writing to everyone I have ever fangirled in my life. So there are some episodes coming up that I'm super excited about, but none more excited about than today's. Tatiana Denford is a extraordinary poet. I learned about Tatiana through another extraordinary writer, Laura Parrott Perry, who posted herself reading one of Tatiana's poems from the book Conversation with Grief on her um, Instagram the other day. Follow Laura, follow Tatiana. Their words are so beautiful. I'm just so grateful to have Tatiana both in conversation with us and reading some of her gorgeous poems with us today. I know you're going to enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I think the the thing with poetry, it's not a format that normally people reach for. And I think it has this stigma where people are like, oh, she's writing poetry. Oh, she feels so, you know, self-involved and like, you know, but a, a friend of mine who is, who is a wonderful human being and she's a musician and an editor and stuff. She said to me something really interesting. She said, with poetry, if it's really good poetry, it cuts through the traditional narrative so that the writer actually takes a moment and literally lives in that moment and describes that moment and makes the reader feel like they are there at the same time. It's very different than writing a novel Absolutely. or you know, you know, a memoir or something. It's just, you are more distanced from that format. With poetry, and this is kind of what I've, I've realized, she was very accurate in describing it that way. I, I realized that I was writing poetry because selfishly, that's exactly what mm-hmm. I needed to hear and how I needed to make sense of the moments that I was in. I used to write poetry a lot as we all do when we're like 10 you yeah. know and yeah and I used to write little short stories when I was that age and stuff and for some reason I felt myself after my grandmother died last year it just happened and I was the furthest away from any kind of inclination to write a novel at all my first novel was really fun to write it was very difficult yeah. Um, because I was taking on something that needed a formula almost. Yeah. Where maybe it's subjective. I think there is good poetry and bad poetry. Absolutely. There yeah. are some books out there now that are very popular because the author has a stage and a platform yeah. and stuff. And they are like three lines of where are you? You are here. So am I. I know. And then it has a drawing and maybe somebody needs to hear that. And I don't want to be disparaging about any author that's putting out books. I think it's amazing, but I think poetry, you still need to dig deep. It's not like you can sit around and like pull shit out of the air and go, I'm just going to make poetry. I think it really, I think it's a very different process. It's still really difficult and you still feel exhausted. Yeah at the end of producing a book of poetry, just like you would a novel. It's just a very different journey. I love that you're talking about it because it sounds like your friend is an editor and a musician. I think part of what your what your book is for me, but also each individual poem is like this very visceral reaction, like you have to art. You know, I have this painting upstairs that it's not a painting, it's a print that my, my husband and I traveled to the Isle of Skye. He's English and we tra- traveled to the Isle of Skye and went to this restaurant. And there were there was this art that I was like, I'm going to have to steal this art. Like, I don't know how to explain. It's not a memento. There is something inside of me that is connected to this art in a way that will I will grieve if I don't take it with me. And they were like, you're not the first person. She lives over there, you know, go... And what's interesting about it is I had it in my, in my office, this piece, 
And several of my clients were like, wow, that's really dark. That's really grim. That looks like death. And I was like, so should it not be in here? And they were like, well, it's not like hopeful. And to me, it was this like beautiful truth. Like I felt like the truth was on the wall. And so I think with poetry, because it's so stripped down, but also I don't believe good poetry is done any other way than viscerally. Yeah. Right. So some of the writing that I was doing that I think is good writing and, and I am not a lifelong writer. I had experiences in high school that sort of, this is going to sound perverse, but there were people who were too interested in me continuing to write in a way that made me feel out of control. So I just stopped writing. I just was like, whatever this attention is, I don't want it. So I'm going to stop. And I feel like it, you know, the writing came back for me when I needed it, which was to help me connect to others. But I would wake up at three in the morning with like words wrestling in my head that felt like all that stuff that people talk about the muse and the liminal and all of that. But it really did feel like it was coming from the electrical current that was inside of me. And so that to me is what happened with this book was like, oh my God, it's like, it's like electrically shocking me. Because I don't know what made you write these, but it has to be the same thing that makes me desperate to read them. Like, and maybe similar to art and you can't explain it. Maybe it isn't something that any other words, like all the words that we would put into a novel, maybe, maybe we're not going to be able to go for it. So you did poetry at 10, you've written a novel and, and my understanding are, are, is this book connected mostly or all the way to your grandmother dying? Is that where these came from? Or is it a, is it the whole host of all the griefs that we carry through life? I think the birth of the beginning of that book was my grandmother dying. And I think because she was such an you know, integral part of my life in a lot of ways, not the traditional grandparent role necessarily. She was a very complicated woman and her stories were quite heavy. And when I finished Motherland, I said to myself that there's something left. I don't know, it was a really strange feeling. I felt like I had more to write almost. And then people were asking me for like a novel detailing what happens after. So if you, after Motherland, I don't want to um, reveal any spoilers or anything, but um, right. there's a reuniting. And then somebody said, well, you should write a novel based on the perspective of some of the, you know, secondary characters. So oh, I was thinking about that. And, you know, I published the book in March of last year, and then she died in April. And something kind of shifted then. And I thought, well, it was, it kind of, her death kind of blew me apart a little bit and just, I kind of let the pieces settle. And it was the first very big, I'm lucky because this is the first very big death in my life. And suddenly I'm kind of confronted with this existential problem almost yes that's exactly what it is on I remember the first kind of month or so the stuff that I would be saying the words I would be repeating is but where did she go yeah but where did she go and it's it kind of makes me a bit emotional thinking about it but my husband was always saying to me there's an amazing poem saying I'm just in the next room yeah like a you know and And then I started thinking, and then it got me on this really strange track. I would go out and walk the dog every morning. And then I suddenly, all of these thoughts started going in my head. She's in the next room. What if grief is in the next room for all of us? What if, what if it kind of lives in the next room, just waiting? What if, you know, and then I started kind of going down this rabbit hole of God, we experience grief when our hearts get broken. We experience when, like all through our life, it's like this thing that exists. It's the dude sat at your kitchen table going, we might need to have a chat today, you know? But So I love that. Then, like, then it, all of these conversations in my head were going on. And then I started kind of looking around for other signs of it not just signs of her, but where does grief live in our lives? So, and then I started going on the internet and seeing all these forums and it's 
it then it just became this book in my head, but without even me knowing it. So every day I would just write these pieces down and then I just forget about them. And then I, I, I keep writing, keep writing. And then eventually I was like, right, I'm going to put this together because people say I talk a lot and I talk a lot. And I used to go on my dog walks and I used to go on social media, on my Instagram stories. I used to have chats with people, just me talking to the camera about things and things. And people like, you know, talking to you is like talking to a friend. And then suddenly I put two and two together. I'm like, these are really just conversations. These pieces that I'm writing are just conversations I'm having with myself, with other people, with the universe. And then it became this thing where I was like, I'm going to create books based on these little conversations of poetry and prose and stuff. So that's how this book came out, the book about grief. And it's when I started putting it together finally and formatting it, formatting the manuscript, I'm reading again, some of these things that I'd written four months ago. Yeah. Going, I do not remember, I genuinely yeah. remember writing it. I mean, I'm thinking a million things while you're talking. One is a lot of what I teach people who are in grief is the neuroscience behind why we don't remember things like what is actually going on in our brain and why it isn't it coding information sort of in sequence and why we're having trouble sleeping and eating and all that stuff, because people generally find it kind of comforting to know it's not just you're crazy. It's that this is the body's way defense of sort of defending against being too in and absorbed by this total, you know, emotional overload. So that's sort of the psycho ed part, but the type of therapy that we talk about is sort of the image that I give people is that you have various bus drivers, you know, who drives the bus today, who generally drives your bus and that the bus driver that generally drives your bus when you have profound traumatic loss cannot drive. She cannot drive, someone else drives. And sometimes that's somebody who is, you know, you need to grow that part so yeah. that they can drive from time to time. And that image, I'm always asking people, particularly writers, and what's the metaphor that you love for grief? Because everybody has one. It's like an ocean or a boat or a tree or something. Yeah. I love the idea and I don't know why I had this image, but when you were talking about grief as like a friend, I have this image of like an old English pub and like they're in the other room, just waiting for you to come in there and like to talk about whatever needs to get talked about. That isn't an image I had before you just gave that to me. But I feel like much as I always say to people, which is if everyone wrote their grief story in whatever way made sense to them, whether they did it with words or poetry or music or art, we would still need every other person's story because the universal collective around the existential, what does life mean now when you've had such a significant loss is the human Mount Everest that we all yeah. try to climb. And there are some folks in the grief world who talk about, listen, grief is a totally natural experience. Everybody has to go through it. Many people will go through it without you know, too much turmoil and they will report it's somewhere around 60%, according to the data that they didn't, that they were fine. And first of all, I would challenge that data. Like I've yet to meet a single human that wasn't like, it was, it was terrible. That doesn't mean every death and loss is terrible, but for most people, when you, when you lose a primary attachment, someone to whom your tent is staked yeah. You got to figure out where are we moving the tent? Are we shifting the tent? Like what is, how are we going to live? And I have recently just learned that there's neuroscience around language, helping that to heal our neural pathways, that it relaxes our brain. Isn't this amazing? It relaxes our brain back into a sense of grounding when we use words that make sense to us. Yeah. You know, and the, and the way that I described it is like, you take a stone and you kind of memorize it and then you feel okay about putting it back down because you kind of know the coordinates and you know what it looks like, and then you don't have to carry it. But for me, that process, I couldn't do my own stone. I kind of had to have other people tell me about theirs in order to feel safe. If that makes yeah. sense to like, even really take a look at mine. Yeah. And, you know, I came to your book. I don't know when, I don't know when I got it, but I read it four times, but when it came to me, I had already done some of this process and I run a writer writer's workshop. I talk about grief all day long. There are some pieces in here that I feel like are these tributes 
to those of us that grieve. One of them that I put on my Facebook page yesterday was just this, that snippet about the, the garbage men, like sort of like, yeah. you know, everybody has that. Everyone that I have ever spoken to talks about how fucking dare the earth continue to spin yeah. on its axis. How dare yeah. it just go through all these pedantic, you know, expressions yeah. of life when there are, you know, there's a giant hole through the hurricane that just, you know. Yeah. I mean, I, I actually remember writing that one because I remember sitting there going, great. My husband gets to go to work the next day and my kids are asking me for snacks. And, you know, meanwhile, I'm here in pain. Yeah. That's so unfair. I deserve better treatment. Right. Because this person died. So you can't keep going. You have to hurt just like I do. <laughs> right. And you're describing it with anger. Right. And so that's one of the things that I think some of your poetry has little shards of that in there. It is universally expressed by people who've had traumatic loss that they are somehow holding a, a basket of anger that yeah. they are not used to in their life. And that it is often directed at people who don't deserve it like their husbands. Or for me, it was my children. I mean, I just couldn't believe the audacity of them continuing to need shit from me yeah. when I could not see past my own hands. I mean, that actually still happens to me. My husband and I have to really balance. Like it sometimes feels like it, it's either them or me who survives yeah. because my grief can get so great that I can not attack them, but just be incredibly resentful that anyone needs anything from me when I need so much from myself. In your poetry, I also sort of feel like those elements are, they're just like little shards of glass that are in there that are the universals that help those of us who are in grief just feel a little more. That's, that is the guy that's sitting at the bar. Like that's who it is. That's when you're having a conversation with grief, we're all having a conversation with grief. Grief has these qualities to it yeah, that are not qualities of me. They're the qualities of grief. Yeah. And I think that's why when I was naming the book, I was really tempted to name it conversations with grief. And I remember sitting there and I was really struggling with it for a while because my husband does, you know, media and marketing and stuff. He was saying to me, you're writing is much bigger than mm. these little conversations. And I was like, yeah, but it doesn't, it won't make sense to people. And he goes, I think when people read your book, they'll get it because it's not these conversations. It's a conversation, the whole conversation, the whole thing then just radiates beyond what these little pieces are. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I didn't think about it that way. And I think like I've seen books like Conversation with God. If you think about it, it's not little snippets. Right. It's the like cool. it's much bigger than just this thing. You know, I think that's kind of ultimately what I want people to get from it is that it's a conversation. Like it's all. What's great about it, though, conversation, meaning it's a lifelong we're going to come back to the table and be back on the same theme. Part of what that encompasses, and I'm not sure you meant this, but it feels like your husband sort of had the prescience to sort of say like, listen, that's what this is, is that that changes over time, right? Like you look yeah. at some of your poems and when you're in fresh grief, your brain is sick. Like you don't remember some of those things. Now, some of the stuff that I wrote in really fresh grief, I'm like, wow, that was gorgeous. I could never rewrite that now. Like I don't have, I don't have those words. I'm so glad I put that down because I, you know, that rings a bell for me, but also the way that I would talk about it now has perspective and a little less pain to it and maybe more connection. I felt really, I think one of the things, and, and you have this in here in various places, there's an aloneness and a loneliness yeah. that we tussle with. And it drives me crazy when people say like, oh, you're not alone because, you know, as soon as we <laughs> think about the concept of existential, like you are alone, you are 100% alone in your grief. And anything other than that is minimizing it. Like anything other than the absolute acceptance that I lost my, my own relationship with my mother all by myself, even though I have five brothers and sisters, we can talk about the narrative of our conversation with our friend over here, grief, but it's going to be different. And what that feels like in the in the beginning first months versus what that feels like 
over time. And when people say, oh, it gets easier, or it gets whatever the wor- right word is, which is probably multiple words. Yeah. I just know it's different. I just know that it's different over time. And so I really feel like, wow, what if I hadn't caught Laura's IG? What if I hadn't picked up this book and what I keep inscribing to people as I'm handing it out is, or, you know, putting snippets up is, is saying these words might be what you need right now, because I really believe in that as well as sort of the artistic process and the therapeutic process is that things come to you as you need them. Can I ask you to read one for me? Yes. Good. Will you read like that? I'm going to ask you to read more than one because the other thing is they are something to read they are another thing completely to hear out loud. And oh God. I'll I mean, do my best. <laughs> I can't wait. Okay. So do like that for me. Okay. Like that. The only book on loss is the one you don't know how to write. It doesn't exist until you kind of acknowledge that it doesn't. Yeah, I know that doesn't make any sense, but hear me out. The book doesn't write the first page until the one you love writes themselves out of your life and you're left with empty pages curling under the weight of your tears. Then, maybe months later, you grab a then and a how, and finally, do I do this? And then you wait. Anger is here, you notice, and you invite it to write a page. Anger tends to write a lot of pages, actually. You wait some more. Envy appears. Envy confuses you. Take me, why not me, it writes. It only needs a few words. And then you wait. Months later, an I, and then a miss, and then a you whispers. You hear it, but you don't want to write it down. So it steps out of the shadows and takes your hand and moves the pen slowly. I miss you, you write. Every page, one line, every page forever. And love opens the door and sits down next to you. It's like that, it tells you. Love is written like that. It kills me, it kills me. I can only imagine that if you were to come and stay with me for a week, it would be really good for your ego. Because it it just do you know do you, so the only other time I had such a visceral response to poetry and I have no explanation for it other than it just took me by surprise. Do you know the poet Carol Ann Duffy? Just, yes, yeah. Yes. So she she has this poem called Words Wide Night, which is there's a line in it. It ends with saying, "And this is what it's like to miss you," or "This is what it's like in words." I read it in the middle of the British Museum. I, you know, it was like a scrap of paper because she was the poet laureate at the time. And I was like, I had to hold on to the counter because that's the point, right? The point is we are constantly trying to find expressions yeah. of what our feelings are. And so th- this podcast is called Grief is My Side Hustle because all of my things are called Grief is My Side Hustle. But I run a small sort of Instagram workshop called grieve is a verb, yeah. which is about the idea that, you know, the way that people get sick with grief is that they don't find a way to express it and move the energy through their body. And recently what I've been saying is so my dad died in 2017. My mom died in 2019 and it's taken us a while to get their artifacts and their life all packed up partly because COVID made that harder, but we've just sold their house, which is in this beautiful town in Massachusetts on the, on the water. And so my sister and I, this weekend are going to drive up and sort of, you know, like take the vase that we want and also say goodbye to the house. And people have said, you know, how, how are you, how is that? How, and 94% of it is completely fine. I had a lot of processing. I was the one who was there to do the, the grieve as a verb action of packing things up and throwing things away. So I got a lot of that process, but what kills me is I have a friend who's a scientist and many years ago, I said to her, I was losing weight on purpose after I'd had a kid. And I was like, I don't mean to be ignorant, but where does it go? 
Like, where is, like, is it in the sweat? Like, where is the weight? And she sort of laughed and she was like, oh, it goes into the air. You know, you, it becomes energy and it's returned back to the universe. And both of my parents died in this house and they were, you know, their blood and their bones and all that was cremated, but their energy is in this house. And, and yes. And particularly, I mean, I, I woke up at three o'clock in the morning and was like, oh God, I know what this is now, but I've been really struggling with this one image of my mom, like watering her garden, which is what she did a lot. She loved to water her garden. She'd sit there with like a cigarette and her little tank top and water her garden. And people keep saying, you know, are you going to keep anything from the house? And I'm like, I want the hill that her feet were on. Like, I want the, I, I want her footsteps. Yeah. And in my mind, I imagine eating them, which is crazy. But anyone who has a child knows that sometimes you look, you stand over their bed and you're like, I want to consume you. I want to put you back inside me. Yeah. Not because you want to protect them, but because you're so consumed. It doesn't make sense that this extension of your own energy is outside of you. It should be inside. So I've had this image in my head and I keep writing it. Like I want to eat the ground. And last night I woke up and I was like, no, I just want to kiss the footprints. Like, that's what it is. I just want to like every little one, like in the Bible where they wash the feet, like just, you know, the notion that that is where the spirit lies. And you have some poems in here that feel like that to me, that feel like they are honoring the, the like energy of yeah. the person is with, which is why I think it feels so crazy universal to me is that it, it, that thing that I've been struggling with, which is, I don't want to eat the dirt. I don't want to bring the dirt back. I woke up and was like, no, I just want to, I just want to honor the footprint somehow. And how will I do that if we don't own that hill? Like, how will I honor her? her But I I think think that's what me in particular, maybe my, maybe my writing and even with my novel, I think I am constantly trying to understand how we collectively are, you know, how we without sounding terribly existential here it's just you know what does it mean to be to feel all these things and I think that's why all these pieces came out because I was struggling with that after that chapter was closed in my life last year where am I I feel untethered I feel slightly lost I think that's been that's kind of who I am anyway I am constantly asking questions and trying to figure out my place on this planet and in my life and what's my role and how do I, you know, and I think a lot of people feel like that, but they maybe can't articulate it or don't articulate it because they feel that it's slightly luxurious to kind of think about their own existence. And I, and I get it because we have other things to focus on and think about, but you know, I what love that I can connect to people in this way because if I'm thinking it and I can kind of encapsulate a moment and connect with somebody truly it will make it okay for other people to go yes that's exactly how I was feeling and it is complicated it is ugly and messy and joyful and ridiculous and all of that you know and I maybe like me making it okay for myself to admit all of these messy things about how I feel about myself and my life, it makes somebody else go, actually, that's just being human, you know? This is the thing that I think particularly, you know, because it doesn't matter which estimate you use, but that there are a staggering number of people that are trying to navigate loss without a lot of supporter instruction, you know, we do a lot of like, go see your therapist, feel better over there, cry in their office and then come back and, you know, get back to work, you know, get back to the photocopy or whatever. Right now, I, you know, I have a longer list of people waiting to see me than I ever have before, as do every single one of my colleagues. If I had a friend that needed to find a therapist right now, I'd have a hard time finding them a slot. I am hoping almost like in this religious way that we have more lay servers, like more people who are just part of the general population who show up to sort to hold what needs to be held together. And I think 
artists, maybe people who are creative, who use more, you know, of the right brain and sort of that instinctive, like what I always say to people. And I didn't, I knew this about myself and didn't know it about myself is that I run all hot and cold. And when I'm cold, I know I'm in it. I know I'm on the truth. And I use that as a therapist. I use it as a writer, but when that's a very right brain sort of intuitive concept. And we need all the people who are explaining the science. And I'm, I'm in the middle of writing a book, which is just sort of like, listen, you feel like you are new to this the same way that like a teenager is new to falling in love. And that feels like they are the first ones to do it. Let me tell you what the universals are. Like when people come into my office and say, I haven't slept in a month, I'm like, that's nothing. That's just run of the mill grief. Like, I don't mean to be dismissive, but I'm not worried about that at all. Let me ask you some other questions. And there are some tasks of grieving that really have to be done. So how do I support this person who can't even say, I mean, when I went to treatment, I couldn't even say my mother died without going way down under the water and being completely overwhelmed. And in order to be in life, you have to be able to say my mother died without it, you know, wrestling you like an alligator to the bottom of the pond. Yeah. How do we get from here to there? And I actually, I think more of the right brain sort of intuitive, creative components, which don't make any logical sense that we maybe can't explain why they work are the things. Yeah. Actually in life, when we are feeling rudderless, we look to art, we look to the creatives and it, it, we look to them to help us feel better about ourselves and our problems and our issues. And we look to that to help us make sense of it. And I know part of that is maybe distraction, which is fine. Especially the last year, people have been distracted. They've been playing their favorite music, watching their favorite movies, buying loungewear, spending money they don't have because they're trying to feel better. But I think in particular, grief and loss is very hard to live with, but I think it's rewarding ultimately, even if it's painful to let ourselves live in those feelings. Totally. Because the more, the more we distract and don't ask ourselves questions or don't just say to a friend, you know what? I feel awful right now. And I'm saying things in my head that are really damaging to me. Like just some being able to admit that is okay. I think a lot of people feel like being able to grieve openly is a sign of weakness. Maybe in Western culture, I think in other cultures, yes. not so much. You're right. We in particular, I'm not like trying to abash America, but we, we really do pathologize the idea that like, well, you know, her husband died four months ago and she's still crying. Like, you're, you're telling me a lot about yourself when you yeah. say that. Right. But, and so we pathologize it and we don't want to know about it. And, and we sort of isolate the person who's grieving, not because we're bad people, but because I don't know how to do it. And so I can't show up and help you. And I do think there's this relief, like native speech speakers of a language, when you find someone who can really just like, Oh no, I completely get it. Say all the things to me. I, they already make sense. There has to be distraction. It's yeah. too overwhelming. I mean, we would lose our sense of concept, I think. And there are a very small percentage of people who do become psychotic with grief. But most of us, you know, we do a little bit of, you know, grieving. And, and there's a grief theory about this, which is like a pendulum swing. You know, you grieve and there's re- restoration and then you grieve and then there's restoration. And I think, I think the distraction as a tool in the toolbox with all the other tools is excellent if distraction is the only tool that you have for grief, you will miss out on the unbelievable gift that almost everyone describes it being ultimately in the end, because you really do have a different sense of your humanity. The metaphor that I use is that like, we have to grow into grieving and for traumatic loss, it's a little bit like you need a short order cook to serve the dinner right now. And you don't have any night skills. Like you got to learn on the job No one will ever say the event that happened. I'm okay with, I'm okay with my grandmother dying. I'm okay with my mother dying. No one, no one, you don't have to say that in order to say there has been this big space in my life that would not be here. And that that space, maybe the traumatic growth element is the idea that it's something better. 
any sort of survival just means it didn't take you down. And when I'm talking to people, you know, that's what we're looking for is, did you make only negative meaning? Is it only now more limiting in your life? this terrible thing that happened or are you living forward? And what we all hope is, well, I'm never going to waste a day or a moment. I'm going to live for the, you know, all of that. No. And that's not what we do because that's not how we're built, but maybe somewhere in between, you know, the idea that a year and a half ago, I wasn't writing and now writing. And, you know, what I keep saying to people is this has been the biggest growing year of my life. Like I have a podcast. I, have a website. I have speaking gigs. I'm in the middle of two different books. None of that would have happened because I wouldn't have had the engine of feeling that drove it, you know, without that experience. But it's, but it's a particularly interesting time to see everyone sort of come to that, you know, space at the same time, I think, because at least I, I know very few people who haven't had some impact uh, by COVID, you know, maybe they themselves are not a primary griever, but they're at least adjacent to a story that is, feels Uh untenable. Yeah. Grief adjacent. Yeah. I like (laughs) that's not my word, but I love that word. I love that word because it helps people sort of understand that even though it's not your story that you can still have feeling about the story, that's really complicated. Can I get you to read one more for me? Okay. So I would love for you to read growth. Yes. But yes. honestly, I could, I mean, can you see all the dog ears? Like it's embarrassing. They're all. I love that. I love when books are well-loved, honestly, like that's just what books are for. You but, know? but once you've dog-eared the whole thing, you just need to keep reading. You just need to pick it up <laughs> and read it again if it's that dog ear. But yes, I would love to hear growth. Thank you. Growth. This is empty, I said, when you handed me the wooden box etched with stories from so many years, the grooves bored through almost to the middle, worn, tired paths. Look inside, you told me, and I waited years before I did. I hid. I waited for something to appear inside, for the tangled thing inside me to undo, but it never did. This is empty, I said again. You pressed the box to my heart, closed like a fist, and said, so is this. So I lifted the latch, pried the old wood open to see, and it was me. I was hollow, carved out, emptied and discarded. Grief had stolen everything and left shards of hope and departed. And then I saw a little piece of me and grew a tree. Roots don't need evidence of hope. They just need constant care and love to exist, to be. The roots don't need evidence of hope. They just need constant care and love to exist, to be. I mean, come on. Um, You're going to get me crying at some point. Like I'm rereading this going, oh God, like it's, you know, and I, I, just like everyone lately, I feel so tender about things in the world and myself and stuff. And, you know, I think it's, I think it's really healthy, but also really difficult for us to kind of sit still. And I'm not, I'm not good at sitting still. And I think writing helps me sit still. Otherwise I just keep myself busy doing, doing, doing. And, you know, I think disappearing into a world where you can actually articulate how fragile you feel about things, you know, it just, if it makes one person say, you know what, okay, there's hope there. Like, even though right now I feel like I'm scraping the bottom of the barrel, you know? Yeah. I mean, what, what happened to me with that poem is it just reminded me that kind of like hope is in the other room too, maybe sitting next to grief. Like you almost don't have to believe in it. You almost don't have to be talking to it. You know, I think of my job as a trauma therapist and maybe I didn't think this way when I was 25, but I'm 47 and 
I think of myself as sort of the hope merchant in the room, right? Like the person who's, who believes and has to believe, by the way, I have to believe that this can be different and you can feel different in this energy. And I always do. And sometimes the best I can offer is that I believe this for you. Like you don't have to, like, I believe hope is in the other room. You don't have to, you don't have to go in there, but like, just come back next week or come, you know, call me tomorrow and we'll keep trying to find those little shards. But that at the end, just the idea that like, it doesn't need roots. It does, you know, it, yeah. it doesn't but need to be believed. Of, and a lot of my inspiration for this, uh, for this book came from nature because that's where I found myself being and existing yeah. because my grandmother was very much outside all the time and going for walks and hunting for mushrooms in the woods and, you know, and I remember going with my dog and kind of being in the woods and kind of stopping and going, it just keeps going. It just keeps going. It doesn't need any proof of life or hope or anything. It just literally, its job is to just go, well, here I am and this is what I'm going to do now. And I think, yes, people need proof of hope and life right now, but also, like you said, it's, it's really helpful for somebody to look at somebody else and you go if you don't believe it right now it's okay because I do for you you can stay in this kind of darkness right now but just so you know I'm here when you're ready to remind you that that is temporary I saw this documentary probably, oh, it's over a year ago because I saw it in the theater and I'm not a big documentary person, but it's about mushrooms. It's called Fantastic Fungi. It's amazing. And it's essentially the story of how I think it's called mycelium, but I could be wrong. You know, the spores are in the ground all over the place, everywhere, waiting for there to be a natural fiber for it to you know, bring back into the earth. And I was like, okay, so if there was ever a definition of God, it's gotta be those mushroom spores, right? Like the same way that trees are rooted together and they take care of each other and they can communicate across miles, like mushrooms make trees look like nothing. The concept again of grieve as a verb, the idea that our human energy, which is a living organism, would find peace and relief walking out in nature makes so much sense to me and is instinctive for some people. They're like, you know what? I just really wanted to go hiking more and I really wanted to be by the lake and in the ocean. What I am trying to help people do because we don't have this class in college is to understand that yes, tears are one portion of grieving. But that idea of walking out and being amongst all of the cells, the sun on your body and your feet on the planet. I know it sounds, it sounds when I listen to myself, I'm like, oh my God, I sound like that hippie. Like, what am I talking about? (laughs) But I also know it's a hundred percent true. I also know the truth of it. So after my mom died, after, you know, I was back to work for like two and a half months and then COVID hit, we went to pack up her house which then had to sit there for a little bit. And then my kids and I, and my husband were like, what are we going to do? We're going to sit around and wait for them to cancel school. And we threw backpacks in our SUV and drove out West and just like without a plan. It was amazing. We went to 28 national parks, 21 States, something like that. And, and I'd never been, I mean, other than the national parks that are in the Virginia area, I had, this is not We are not like that. I'm not a National Geographic otherwise person, but I felt really strongly about it. And we had this one moment that was in the Badlands, which again, I didn't even know what the Badlands were or where they were, (laughs) or we started driving. We went to go see a sunset because everyone said the sunsets in the Badlands are amazing. And it was like, it's going to be a beautiful sunset. That's what the park ranger said. We got there and this cloud I will never forget it. Like something out of Stranger Things. It looked like a movie set rolled in and there was an electrical storm right in front of us. And then it came for us. Like we had to get in the car and drive away from it. There was lightning hitting ground near us. There were animals that came out. I mean, it was something. I don't know what it was, but it was something. And I remember having this moment where I just sort of felt like I cracked and came back together, which was like, This is so much bigger than my own little grief. 
this is so much bigger. Like this planet and this place can hold this that even when I can't right? like that little hope merchant component of like, I am alone in it, but I'm not alone. You know, that we have this entire human expanse of people who have been grieving forever in untenable ways forever. And 98.6% of the time surviving that, you know, I have a guy coming on the podcast who, you know, spent 10 years drinking after he lost his son. So I don't mean we're all the better for it and become poets. And that's not true, but it doesn't always do the thing that we're afraid of, which is, you know, leave us in destruction. Yeah. The idea, you know, that you knew to walk with your dog and that, and that's the thing I generally say to people is like, I can show you the menu, but what do you think you might like? Yeah. If crying isn't the only thing there, what is occurring to you as energy that maybe you would want to use to move around with what you've got? And people will say crazy stuff that they haven't done in years. And you know what? I, you know, it's almost a, a blessing, even though some, you know, I have three kids, it feels like 28. So, you know, the, it's almost a blessing though, that that was happening to me and that we did have a dog. We just decided to get a dog. We got him right before COVID hit. So, and uh, had I had not had him and the kids distracting me and forcing me to get out of the house. Yeah. If it was just my husband and I, I would have stayed inside the house for months under my comforter and cried, Yeah, watched movies. And I don't think this book would not have happened. My idea right. for three in the series wouldn't have happened. None of this would have come to fruition. It's a strange thing. So, you know, as much as sometimes I would like the silence and I would like to have my own things in my own life and, and you know, have that kind of autonomy. I don't have that luxury because I do have a family and I do have responsibilities and I have a dog. So, you know, it, it kind of got me out of myself. I love that you're even saying that, which is because again, in therapy, sometimes we say, trust the process, you know, people want me to know where we're going. And all I know is that we'll be safe getting there, you know, together. But I like what you're describing, which is left to my own devices. I may not have been able to bring myself that there were invitations that my dog needing to go for a walk or my kids needing me to care for them that I couldn't decline that actually were good for me. And I really do love that also, partly because it just sort of takes off the pressure. I think there can be this therapeutic shame or maybe Oprah causes it where it's, you know, well, if you, if you feel bad, you're not doing a very good job taking care of yourself. And I think of it more, if we are curious and open-minded and also still connected to life, right? Like not everybody can go check out from all the things and actually checking out from all the things maybe isn't, isn't the right road, even though it sounds appealing. For me, it definitely wouldn't be only because I know myself and I tend to wallow and it's very easy for me to catapult myself into a pit of despair. If I'm having a really low moment, I am very good doing that. And I have really good stamina when it comes to feeling low. So I need that outside influence, whether it's my kids, my dog, my husband going, okay, I think you need to get outside or, and it's always the outside. It's really interesting. It's that, I think it's because I like, you know how you said before about how insignificant almost you felt in this electrical storm that was coming. I need to be reminded that my grief, my mess, my life, my desires are not the center of the universe. Me too. I am, I will be dead one day. I will not exist. I am nothing compared to like the grand scheme of things. So there is a little bit of perspective there, you know? Yeah, me too. I find relief in that weirdly. The (laughs) notion that like, really, I'm just a grain of sand in this whole cosmic universe is really relieving to me. And I think does do that thing where it sort of pulls me out of my own ass and I'm like, okay, you know, it's time to, but I think part of what you're describing is relying on social connection to come and get you when you would not otherwise get yourself out of there. And it just, you know, it reminds us that like, that's why we have relationships. That's why we keep up relationships is because there will always be times 
where we need people to come and get us. I want to ask you two things before I let you go. So tell us about what you are working on right now. I've heard you say that there are more, there are more books in this series. There are are more conversation books. So hopefully in the next month, I'll be releasing conversation with motherhood. Um, yeah, I'm really, I'm really excited about this one. And the cover is going to be great. And who uh, did the artwork on this one that I had wanted to ask? It's uh, his name is Amir. And I think I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Oh my God, poor guy. Odoshevich. Okay. And he uh, lives in Europe. And I found him as a freelance designer working on this place on the internet where you find freelance yes, designers. It's called, sure. it's called 99 Designs. Yeah. And I kind of threw a pitch at him saying, listen, this was back in, in the motherland days. I said, here's my ideas. Yeah. Uh, here's what kind of um, I imagine in my brain, font wise, color wise. Mm-hmm. And he just started creating something. So we go back and forth with sketches. He's amazing. Uh-huh. He's very patient because I am very, very picky about certain things in my life when it comes to kind of design and whatever. So he is a match made in heaven. And he's very patient because I send him thousands of emails all the time, but he, (laughs) he designed, um, he designed the, I uh, love it so much. I love it. And I like, and the, and I said to him, I said, I want, when he did the one line, I said, one line would be great. So he did some drawings and then I came back to him and I said, I just realized all of these conversation books have like a universal thread right? So grief, motherhood, the third one this year coming out will be about love. And all of it is just, it's a thread that connects us all. So I thought that's a really poignant kind of thing to tie the book. So yeah, next one is motherhood. And then yeah, third one about love is coming out in the fall. So hopefully by then I could convince people to buy the set as Christmas presents. Amazing. (laughs) Absolutely amazing. I love this so much. Uh, First of all, those feel like personal gifts just to me to know that they exist. I I wanted, but you know what? I I wanted the books to feel, I made them smaller than a traditional paperback size. I wanted them to be portable. I wanted them to, somebody could stick in a bag and, you know, just, carry around with them if they wanted to. I wanted it to feel like a little treat, you know, for somebody to dip into and out of, you know, that was kind of my feeling about the book because that's the pieces that I'm writing are basically personal things from me to people who need them, which is why like I'm now just really kind of mostly writing on my, on my website. Yeah. Instagram is great, but I feel like I want to make my writing feel more personal. I want to engage an audience in a different way. And I think having weekly little pieces coming out where people are like, yeah, you know, I feel like she's talking to me. Yeah. I I like that. I love talking on my social media channels, but I, I want to spend less time maybe talking at people or writing at people. And instead I, I want to write to people. If that yeah. Makes It does. I mean, part of the reason that I'm doing the podcast right now is that some people that help me with my writing, have noticed that my writing shifts and changes when I have conversations with people about the things that are the most important to me. And I, that makes perfect sense to me that we come to understand ourselves better through the conversation and connection. And part of what it sounds like you're describing is that the expression that you want to make feels more intimate once a week with a different cluster of people who probably you know, my experience with my blog posts are that it feels like a little seminar class and that people are talking to each other and Instagram feels more like a poster, like a, you know, it's got an image to it and it's, and that people come to it, but they come to it differently and that it's less satisfying to me at times. Sometimes it's totally satisfying, but other times I want something richer. I think, I think Instagram and Twitter for me are becoming more, and I'm not saying this in a cynical way. I love using those platforms. I think it's really fun. It's really creative, but it's becoming more for creatives for me personally, more about marketing. Yeah. And, and if you have a public platform and you have a, a decent amount of followers, it becomes more of a branding exercise. Yeah. I say this with all, like, I love my audience. I think they're really fun. I can post whatever on there. It's just really creative. I sometimes get ranty and political and I can talk about things, but I think it's Instagram for public people, public creatives are, is more about building a, a profile, a brand marketing, I agree. Which, 
great. And if you do it well, especially as a self-published author, I think it's really helpful. Yeah. Um, but I think if you use that in conjunction with yeah. making sure that you're writing to people, I think both of those are just a really good exercise in, in living a creative life. And I think what you're talking about is making sure that the energy is feeding you, not just feeding the people who are consuming it. Right. Which is like making sure that, you know, it feels good to you. I'm beyond excited to hear that these other pieces are coming out. I'm going to try to make myself be patient. I feel like, I mean, honestly, I said to my husband, like, I wonder what other poetry is out there that I might want to consume and be excited about. Although the cynic in me says, I think this might just be my love affair with you. I'm not sure that this oh, is so nice. Anyone else? Will you, will, will you read us out with one last poem? Yes, I will. And I, I'm, We'll just be so grateful. So what about, what about desert traveling? I love this one. Desert traveling. You are my country. You are my history. Dusty trails and animal entrails and thin trees with split limbs like needles, dry and exposed. And I keep walking. The trick I think is to love like a blindness. A mother doesn't love her own child out of kindness. It's a promise to love as a kind of violence, viciously adoring the acrid beauty that's around. Oh, what I wouldn't give to find you again so I can find my place, know my own ground. Yeah. I think that was the one that I was like, this makes me think of my mom's hill. You know, the idea that it's, that it hurts, that it's violent, that it's aggressive. I just, all right. Well, you know, when you're having those moments and you're like, should I even write anyway? Does anyone even care? You can just come back to this conversation or send me an email and I will remind you that this is, was my oxygen at a time when I didn't even know I needed it. I'm so grateful for your work. Honestly, it is it is really, really beautiful. And I did really buy like a couple dozen copies <laughs> on Amazon. And I, well, you know, on my website, which people do come to, they always ask what's the best book for whatever. And in all honesty, what I want to say is it's not a book that you're looking for right now. If somebody just went through grief, you got to give it a few months. But that's the, Yeah. But I do think there are some people for whom putting something like this in their hand, it comes from such a space of love, you know, it's better than a lasagna. So I'm really grateful to have this. Cause I do, there are some great, like this therapist wrote this book about their loss and it's a good book. There are a couple that are out there that I love, but I haven't had anything like this where I'm like, I am a wild caged animal about the words in this book. And so if, you know, this is my present to you that you maybe wouldn't have found you know, as immediately. And I, I do, I just feel like this is something it's much more visceral. It's less about, can you understand the words and more, do you feel seen by these words? And I think that's what we need. And that, that's the thing that I hope that people will understand about this book. It's something to have. It's like medicine for when you need it. That's, right. that's what I always, and that's how I write. That's always how I write is just for somebody to connect to at some point. I don't write to be a best-selling author who makes millions of dollars. That's not, I live a creative life because I want to figure out how I feel about the world. And I want to give somebody maybe some hope that they, at some point when they need it, they can figure out their place in the world. You know? Well, I don't think we're done with the best-selling author part of it. Uh, <laughs> you just never know where this will go from, from where you're started with, you know, you've got two other books with the hottest topics coming out, you know, yeah. To hear about. I'm so grateful for your time. This really was like, if I had realized that I could fangirl people by having my own podcast, I would have done this a, a long time ago. I, this, I, I, this has just been really fun, Megan. Honestly, like I, I'm just so thrilled about the way you're approaching grief and just like, just generally how you talk about the process. And it's, you know, and I, I really kind of get so much out of people having these kind of conversations, just not about certain feelings and themes, but also about the creative process, you know, it's really helpful. And it's about ultimately how we navigate 
our lives and just, you know, having a community to help us do that. <laughs> Thank you so much for this. Honestly, I really hope we stay connected. I yes, mean, absolutely. if you need, you know, anybody to disseminate your book or when we're back out in the world, if you're looking for someone to host poetry readings and all. I'm well, I'm hoping, yeah, I'm hoping to like, I need help to kind of figuring it out. At, at some point I will figure out how to do virtual tours or yeah. virtual events and stuff and readings. I'm really, really grateful. And I hope we talk again soon. Thank you. you. Okay. okay bye. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Oh man. I just basically never wanted this conversation to end. Go follow Tatiana on her Instagram and you will get to see some of the poems that are going to end up in the books that she mentioned. Come over to Apple Podcasts and rate us. If you mention Tatiana's podcast in your comment section, there is a chance I will send you a book. So go ahead and let me know on my Instagram or my website that you put a comment up and I will go looking for it. I have a whole bunch of signed copies of Tatiana's book and I would love to get it out to you all. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time.